I think it's one of the most wonderful things about the um, Christian faith uh, that you know you do believe that if you've genuinely repented, and only you and God know that, but if you really have, that He rushes out to meet you, uh, and He does forgive uh, and gives you a, a second chance in the way that some of the other religions don't do. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where I talk to interesting, well-known people and try and drill down and work out what they're all on about. And today I'm uh, very lucky to have with me the Reverend Jonathan Aitken, um, former cabinet minister, former old lag in prison and now ordained priest. He's sitting here in his dog collar in front of me, uh, chaplain to um, Pentonville Prison, amongst other things. Welcome. Thank you very much. Jonathan, I have to say, uh, I think people have a I think people have a soft spot for the disgraced. And uh, and I I imagine people have a soft spot for you because of that. Does that does it feel that way? Well, I think soft and hard spots would be a roller coaster uh, ride in my life. I I do think eventually it does become true that a lot of people have a soft spot for the disgraced. But both now I'm a a chaplain in Pentonville, and indeed, from my own recollection, I think there is a time when the disgraced have a rough time, whether yes, deservedly course. or not, undeservedly. Yes. And I can certainly remember um, when a time when nobody seemed to have a soft spot for me at all. No, so no, no. I don't quite accept Well, I worked at the Guardian, oh, Jonathan, okay, so yes. I did for a while. So yeah. that, that, that wasn't, they didn't have a particularly soft spot for you there. They did not, no. I mean, this programme is called Confessions. Do you take Confessions? Yes, I do, and find it a very small but important sacramental part of um, the position of being a priest, and I take it very seriously. I imagine that people may quite like asking you to hear their confession because we we don't like the idea that... um, that people are being terribly judgmental of us when they hear them. And you might be just the sort of person that you might want to confess to because... Well, I certainly find in prison that I'm a much more accepted prison chaplain because I've done time. And um, almost my first day in Pentonville, um, some guy shouted at, shouted at me, F off pie. Now, pie and liquor equals vicar in prison language. So get lost, vicar. And then I said, hang on, um, you know, I used to be a con too. And I was, uh, and he very didn't believe a word of it. But as soon as I produced a few names of (laughs) jails I had been in, uh, which were three while I was sentenced, uh, we sort of struck up a rapport. And this is now fairly common. I mean, it's all. Uh, word on the street or on the wings in Penville is that uh, uh, Father Jono used to be uh, in prison. Right. He's in Belmarsh, you know, so that helps. And and I think probably when people really open up, it's easier to open up to somebody who know probably won't be judgmental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, the way we normally start with this, Jonathan, is we, we, we start by building a picture of where you've come from and your childhood and just build a little bit through your your life story. You were, you were born in, um, in Dublin, is that right? I was. That was really an accident of war. My father was a Canadian fighter pilot in the RAF, was very badly mangled and burnt at one stage. And my mother went home to mum and dad to have the baby, uh, which was quite understandable. 
and mum and dad happened to be um, the British ambassador to Dublin, a very dodgy job in the war. Uh, in fact, um, almost the toughest diplomatic job in Europe, partly because all the other embassies were closed under Hitler. But de Valera was very tricky. Uh, and my grandfather was there. And so uh, I was born in a maternity home in Dublin, very um, amusingly called Hatch Street Nursing. Right. <laughs> uh, and I actually stayed in Dublin for a long time, uh, like seven years, because I caught TB at an early stage. And TB was then, in the 1940s, much more feared than cancer is today as a killer. And by the time it was spotted that I got it, I actually had to be immobilised uh, for three years in a... My um, word, how old were you? How old I were went you? in at four and came out at seven. And it sounds terrible, but uh, my memory of it uh, is that actually I had surprisingly happy time. Uh, of course, I must have been uncomfortable in this kind of... Kind of iron you were confined to hospital. Uh, and confined to a kind of a, a thing called a frame, which was sort of early iron lung. But the only cure for TB was deep breathing, fresh air, and immobilization. And I was in a ward full of these kids. Um, and, of course, some of them did die. So it was, in one sense, quite a searing experience. On the other hand, it was a very good experience because, A, I survived it, and that was always part of the plan, I suppose. Uh, but, B, I actually had a wonderful nun who taught me to read on a magic lantern above my head and was generally a, a terrific sort of Irish comedian and, and lovely spiritual lady. Uh, Did you see much of your parents? Surprisingly little. Uh, my father was sort of very ill. He, he came out of it in the end. Uh, but he had 149 operations in East Grinstead under a great plastic surgery called Archie Mackindoe. So he was sort of... Uh, my mother came and went, but my grandparents um, obviously visited me in the, um, uh, in the TB ward. My grandmother, who was a rather staunch Protestant didn't entirely enjoy the idea of her um, grandson being nursed by wicked Roman Catholic nuns. Uh, but anyway, she, I, I, and she used to send along, just to make sure I was going to remain a good Protestant, age four, um, my grandfather's press secretary, who was supposed to be an authority on the Church of England, <laughs> and indeed was, because he was John Betjeman. Oh, my uh, word! And John Betjeman used to come along and read poems and... Um, I don't think I can't remember him ever asking me anything about um, how I was getting on on religious matters, <laughs> but but uh, it it was not a bad experience. The TB ward, I went there, went back to it quite recently with a BBC program called The House Where I Grew Up, and these ardent ladies in charge of the program wanted me to say, oh how terrible it was, how awful it was, suffering, appalling. I mean, my whole growth had been stunted emotionally by this. And I wasn't having any of that because genuinely my memory, I suppose it's played some tricks with me, but my memory was that this was a place which uh, I enjoyed and was happy in. And little boys don't understand that they are disabled. They sort of think it's normal. Anyway, I got through and I'm very grateful to that hospital called Kappa in Dublin. And then, then you came. Then you came back after you after you were released from the hospital, and you came back to England. Yes, and um, to school. Yeah. By that time, we were living in Suffolk, and uh, and um, occasionally I read articles saying you had a very privileged background, things like that. And 
But it didn't feel like that in post-war Britain. It was sort of food rationing. Uh, we were quite hard up. My father was still disabled. Um, my mother was also a magistrate, so she was a somebody in the little town of Halesworth. But it, it certainly there was no great luxury or privilege as far as I could see. But, but the people who keep on walking in and out of your life seem to be quite distinguished people. Well, I, I don't know. I, th- I think um, I've always been attracted to interesting people who often are distinguished. I don't know why it's happened like that, but that's the way it goes sometimes. And then school there and then uh, big school at Eton. Yes, I went to a very good um, schools in Suffolk, one a local primary, one uh, prep school called Orwell Park with eccentric but marvellous headmasters, and um, then to Eton, which was, again, I was rather unhappy at Eton at the beginning, um, partly because I wasn't any good at games, but life got better. Eton is a very individual school. It's very much characterised as this um, enormously monolithic, snobbish place. But actually, you don't have to look at lists of old Etonians with George Orwell and people. You will get a room to your own from day one and plenty of scope for being individual. And my thing, even as a young teenager, was sort of politics and journalism and debating. And I had a happy Etonian life. Were you, what, was the, what was the politics of your, of your sort of family background? and Because you sort of became quite a... I want to say notorious right-winger, but uh, is that something that you inherited? No. Uh, my father, uh, who was Canadian, but curiously ended up in the British House of Commons, would certainly be sort of something of a social democrat. Right. Um, my grandfather, who was uh, had been a permanent secretary, was probably a Labour voter. He was certainly a great friend of Attlee. Um and so, and my great uncle, who was my most famous relative, Lord Beaverbrook, although he was a great imperialist and banger of the drum and anti-common market and things like that, he was actually something of a radical and social policy. So it wasn't sort of... That sounds like a good combination yeah, to me. <laughs> yes, not bad at all, I agree. But uh, all these characters, I mean... I, I don't think I felt I was a staunch right-wing Tory. Well, no. Who were the formative? Was... In, who was the formative influence on you at school? Was there a? Was it? Did, did your politics sort of develop with a particular sort of influence? And I had one or two wonderful masters whose names have long since faded from public gaze, but um, they were just good at, for example, teaching me about the love of the English language. I think I, uh, Eton in those days had a curious but wonderful. Um, discipline, which was it was called the saying lesson. And once a week, sometimes twice a week, you had to learn by heart about 20 lines of poetry right. and recite them. Yes. Um, when I got to Belmarsh Prison, I found it was amazing how much of the stuff uh, I remembered and could recite still. Uh, so, uh, and... Eton was quite quirky. It didn't sort of it was in those, it wasn't under pressure to get you grades. You could go into all kinds of interesting highways and byways. Uh, there was something called private business, which sounds rather sinister, but actually was really about teaching you about whatever the master wanted to teach you about. Like, uh, and I got my love of opera, I think, out of listening to LP records, as they were called, um, from uh, masters who were very enthusiastic and all sorts of books. 
And uh, But the biggest single influence on my life was probably my maternal grandfather, who was this distinguished diplomat. He just had a Rolls-Royce mind, and he opened mind to all kinds of interesting avenues. Rather surprisingly, he was an atheist, so he couldn't be said to influence me spiritually, except at one moment when I thought of, at Oxford, of um, maybe should I look at having a religious vocation I only oh, that was that was something that you thought of well, back then. I, th I think pretty feebly. I see. But I did at least go and talk to two or three vicars about it. My grandpa was horrified <laughs> and wrote me long letters about how this would be a complete waste this of life. This was at Christchurch in Christchurch, Oxford, where, yes. where, where you were, where there's a there's a great cathedral there, and so there's a sort of yes. there's a there's a there's quite a potential for being influenced by the there church. Are, I mean, there are seven canons of Christchurch. We'll have. Um, great rooms there and on the whole teach rather obscure subjects as medieval church history or something. Yeah. But um, I did go and talk to one of them, uh, probably managed to put me off too, along with my grandfather, going near the church. But I did actually think about it. It was interesting, interesting. In, in retrospect. Politics was, the, was, was what you made your name in. And that's what you you went into. What were, what were your sort of reforming sort of political? Where, where, was, where did the zeal come from? I think the zeal came from wanting to do something rather than to be somebody. I was never, rather surprisingly, although I got keen on it towards the end, all that interested in being sort of undersecretary for drains and sewers at an early age. I was more interested in the parliamentary life and the enormous opportunities there are for asking questions, getting things done. If I look back on what I achieved in my backbench years, surprisingly little, I think, except perhaps for, I hope for being a good MP. I always enjoyed the sort of constituency uh, side of it. But I suppose I did play a small part in, first of all, being a very, very early Eurosceptic, when it was deeply unpopular to be a Eurosceptic. And I always, I did actually vote to stay in, in the referendum um, back in 65. But Almost immediately thereafter, the scales fell from my eyes. So I was quite a campaigner for why a lot of this European legislation just was wrong. And secondly, I was a freedom of information man at a very early stage. Um, I was interested in uh, scrutiny by Parliament of the intelligence services. I was in favour of reforming the Official Secrets Act. There was quite a lot of that traffic in uh, uh, through Parliament. So I don't think I achieved very much as a backbencher, but I did love the life of a backbencher. And I had some wonderful friends on the backbenches in Parliament, the kind you just don't see anymore, but people like Ian Gow and Alan Clark and so on. There was a great camaraderie of, of interesting characters. I think Parliament has become more monochrome uh, because fewer and fewer MPs seem to have done much in their lives before getting into Parliament. I think that's a weakness. And you had friendships across the political divide as well, didn't you? I did. I always thought the, the uh, other side of Parliament had plenty of interesting characters, and I had friendships one or two. Am I right to say that you're the godfather of Diane Abbott's son? Indeed. I, I, Diane Abbott was my pair, which is a relationship which takes some explaining to non-parliamentarians, but basically... It's when two people... You can both skive off at the same exactly. time. Exactly. You, you've got it, yes. <laughs> uh, but you do get to know each other's lives quite well. And I always liked Diane a lot. She's a character. She's brave. Uh, and 
I went through a crisis once with her when she uh, lost her mother, and um, I, I respected her and liked her, and I was very pleased when she asked me to be a godfather uh, to her son. I, I'm, I'm always delighted when, you know, this sort of current rubbish that, that happens within within the left mostly you never kissed a Tory and you know oh. I have no friendships with people it's just it's it's wrong actually well some of the richness of parliament used to come precisely from the other direction and it was common to have friendships on the other side and indeed I went to a funeral at, at um, his request uh, of the pair the labor pair of a man called I think it was called Jackie Davigor Goldsmith, who'd got the VC, but he was a Conservative MP. And he gave the address in the, in the crypt, and he said, I, whoever his name was, um, Bill and I have been pairing for 32 years, and I expect we'll be pairing somewhere else very soon. We have to talk about your fall from grace. Of course. Um, because, uh, and I imagine you've talked about it quite a lot. Perhaps you'd describe what happened. Well, it was a gigantic cock-up in every way by me, and no one else is to blame for it. Uh, and it's rather interesting to me to sort of say, what were the cause of it? And I'm afraid to say it probably was uh, that old demon of pride and arrogance, which made me think the rules didn't need quite to um, apply to me. But basically, um, it started really in a pretty low-key minor way. Um, I uh, stayed in a hotel in Paris, and uh, my bill was paid for uh, somebody who was actually a genuine friend, but was an Arab. And uh, but I shouldn't have uh, accepted his hospitality, or arguably not. I mean, the rules were what you call very grey. And since he'd accepted lots of hospitality to me over the years, it probably, if I'd actually passed it through the system and said, "Is this all right?" Probably I'd said yes, or well, um, maybe not. But this is nothing really that fuss about here. It's a very minor thing. Instead, I, when the Guardian, with the help of Mohammed Al-Fayed, found out that my hotel bill had been paid by an Arab, a Saudi Arabian, um, uh, they asked me about it. Instead of saying, um, why not? Or, well, I may have been there of judgment. Uh, instead, I said, no, I, my wife paid the bill. And that was the crucial lie. The lie itself was probably not that serious. Uh, but I denied it so strongly. And, and the old uh, nursery rhyme, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive this small lie, which if I'd admitted it early on, um, wouldn't have really caused much trouble. It grew into something which became, <coughs> became a total disaster area because I told the lie again and again on oath and so on. And so um, in the end, when it was revealed, my whole world fell apart. I remember your speech. I mean, everybody remembers your speech, the the, the campaigning speech about cutting out, yes. you know, the cancer of bent and twisted journalism with the, what, what was it? Um, the it? trusty sort of truth or something. That's right. <laughs> it's Now, I have to watch it every so often and I look at it and say, gosh, who is that arrogant burke up there on that television screen? Anyway, there you go. The, 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 I guess you must have had time to reflect upon what it was that, that there must have been something in you that you said perhaps arrogance that sort of well, that you, that, that it, it, led it, you into it, making that it, fatal mistake, really. Well, it was certainly arrogance and pride. 
It was also anger, uh, some of which was not entirely unjustified because uh, the Guardian had been at war with me for some time and they'd, put it politely, taken a few liberties. So I wanted to hit back, but I, I shouldn't have hit back. I mean, it'd been much better not to Fair do so. Time, yeah. And to sort of go into combat on this point where I was really weak anyway was just stupid. But anyway, I did. And what was it you went to prison for? I went to prison basically for telling the same lie uh, in a court case on oath. Um, uh, and I think the ch charge was perjury. It was also rather oddly conspiring to the, pervert the course of justice, but I hadn't really uh, conspired with anyone. It was sort of, uh, as far as I was aware. But it was the hand on the Bible uh, telling a lie yes, type yeah, of absolutely. thing. Yeah. And I... Um, uh, didn't have any complaints about uh, you know the sentence or anything I got because uh, even though it was fairly uh, tough in the world of perjury, which most perjuries get unnoticed, I do think that if you're in a position of trust as a cabinet minister and you get caught breaking the law, it's inevitable that the law is going to come down quite hard on you. So I had no sort of feelings of grievance at all against the system. And where did, where did you go to prison? I went, first of all, rather oddly, to Belmarsh, which is Britain's highest security prison. Yeah, that's, that's for proper wrongings, isn't it? Yeah, proper wrongings. I mean, the, 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 yours not the reason why, uh, about where you go, what happens to you in a prison sentence, but it was just on that day, Belmarsh had space of people coming out of the Old Bailey. So you went, you went from the Old Bailey... To Belmarsh. And you go... And they take... I don't know how this works. You, they, they sort of take you down from when you've been sentenced. They take you down and they, from where you've been sentenced. They, they, in a rather nice, humane way, they give you a cup of tea and say, uh, are you going to be all right? And things like that. Um, and I really was because I'd expected it. Right. Whereas I discovered very quickly when I got to the... Uh, what's called the cage in Belmarsh, where there were a hundred people who'd been sentenced and courts all living. Many of the people who'd arrived in the cage with the traditional optimism of criminals, they'd all believed that the juries would believe everything they said and let them off, or the judge would be lenient. And so a lot of them were in a very, very angry mood. You sort of arrive in handcuffs, and um, it, it's uh, quite a culture shock. They take shock. your suit away and all that stuff. Yes, yes, you, you get um, strip search. It's all quite actually delicately done. Um, uh, but the sort of the noise and the anger of Belmarsh was quite a surprise in the cage, and how furious everyone was. Uh, there was one note of humour which you'll enjoy, um, which was that suddenly in the middle of being in the cage where there was fighting and noise and sobbing. And suddenly I was tapped on the shoulder by an officer and said, Aitken, your turn to see the prison psychiatrist. And I knew I was having a bad day, but I didn't, think I didn't <laughs> need the services of psychiatrists, but again, yours not to. So I got to the psychiatrist, who must have been the only man in England by this stage who was unaware that I was somebody who'd been on the front pages, the head of every news bulletin. And... So he um, asked me a lot of questions just to check out whether or not I was suicidal. And about question number three was, does uh, uh, your next of kin know you're in prison? And the next question was, does anyone other than your next of kin know you're in prison? And I gave him a wry smile. And I said, well, I think by now 15 or 20 million people know <laughs> And he, he thinks, this guy's got delusions uh, in Prandia. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> there, there was the punchline really of the story. 
He then scribbled busily on his pen. He said, do you really mean to tell me you think 1,500? I, I nodded and he said, can I just ask you, have you in your life ever suffered from delusions? <laughs> 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 so that was a that note funny. of comedy in my that first day in prison. Funny. And you stayed there, and um, and then you presumably transferred somewhere softer. Yes, I was actually kept in Belmarsh quite a time for a rather odd reason, which is uh, there is a rule, there's a rule for everything in the prison service, which says that any governor can refuse to take a prisoner. And that's a sensible rule because a lot of these governors have worked their way up through the ranks. And somewhere along the line, Burglar Bill has said, I'll get you for this one day junior officer snooks. Now he's Governor Snooks, but he, he doesn't want to have um, Burglar Bill back in his prison. So there's a sort of reaction. They, all the governors of open prison refused to have me. On the not unreasonable grounds, I discovered that I would be media trouble. And so I took a long time to get out of Belmarsh, which didn't worry me at all, because Belmarsh was tough but fair. You knew where I was. And I didn't mind actually being in a cell a long time because I had the resources to read, to think, to pray, to write. Um, and um, But actually, I was in Belmarsh for about a third of my sentence. Okay. Then I did go to an open prison. So uh, pray is a word you've just brought up, which is very interesting. So did that... Is, is, is that something that's being kick-started by this whole trauma for you? Well, it wasn't exactly kick-started because I'd had some sort of quite good Christian teaching, Christian background, and I had prayed from time to time, had been a bit of a churchgoer. But really all this time I was a half-Christian, which I now know is about Zeus was being half-pregnant. But at the time I thought it was okay. Uh, once I my world fell apart and I went through the sort of downward spiral of what I sometimes called defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy, and jail. Pretty good royal flush of crises by anybody's standards. I think I'd have been insensitive if I didn't, at that stage, start to think about, well, should I get in touch with such spiritual roots as I had? Should that side of Christian teachings ever have meant more to me, and should I have done more about them? And mysteriously, remarkable people, a lot of whom I didn't know, sort of came alongside me and started to uh, helped me. And so by the time I got into prison, I was a praying man, not entirely successful since every single prayer I ever said seemed not to go answered. Uh, you know, oh Lord, please let me not be further investigated by the Guardian. Oh Lord, please let me not be <laughs> prosecuted. Please not let me jail. Uh, none of them were answered. But somehow I stuck at it. And in prison, there was, of course, so much time. Uh, and like monks down the centuries, I found that. Um, cells can be good places to pray in. And then I got into a prayer group in prison with some extraordinarily unlikely characters. But still, we had a prayer group and we met, as you can do in prison, daily, and that deepened. And perhaps the ultimate proof of how deep those prayers went is that uh, along the line, I took this new move to a completely different career change and set off for the one place in Britain which had worse food and more uncomfortable beds than a prison, which was an Anglican theological college. <laughs> Wycliffe, <coughs> Wycliffe in Oxford. Hall. Yeah. <laughs> and I had two wonderful years there under very good tutors. Were there people who were sceptical about your um, journey of faith? You bet. I had bucketfuls of scepticism poured over me at almost every stage, and maybe for all I know I still do, but I hear it so often. Uh, basically... Um, once it got into the newspapers, as everything seemed to do, that I was having any kind of Christian activity, let alone going off to a, a theological college, 
um, the skepticism was extremely noisy um, and um, and sometimes quite unpleasant. And at the beginning, I was rather rocked by this. Uh, but very quickly, I worked out a line of defense in my own mind and soul, uh, which was this. I said, well, whatever they may say, they actually don't know whether it's genuine or not. And I, why am I going off to this theological college? Why am I saying press? I'm doing it for an audience of one. I could not care less about it if I started. I mean, I remember when I went to theological college, and I sort of sat and I sort of slept in those uncomfortable beds and ate that terrible food as you did. I couldn't work out myself. I mean, you know, part of me felt, am I writing checks that I can't cash intellectually or emotionally and so forth? So to to have that process, which is a very common one at seminary, plus the the weight of scepticism that came through public appropriation, that must have been quite tricky. It was quite tricky, and it was made more tricky by the fact that I didn't actually really quite know why I was going to this theological college myself. Yes. I knew I wanted to know more about this mysterious figure called God. Uh, there's been academic monkey in me all my life. I love studying things and getting to grips with the kind of deeper inside understanding of things. Uh, but uh, why was I there? And the only thing I was pretty sure about was that I didn't want to get ordained. And indeed, I really did not think seriously of it. There were all the fellow students. I think there were 120 students at Wycliffe at that moment. 119 of them were going to be ordained. Right. I was not. And they, of course, said, you must join our club. You're going to all our lectures. You're going to... I was even going off practicing how to conduct a funeral and uh, things like that, but even though I knew I was never going to do it. Of course, I have done it now. But uh, So it was rather surprising that um, I, I didn't get anyway, too diverted and too discomforted, but there were moments of discomfiture. But but in the end, you did. <laughs> I know. Well, they say Francis Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven, like, mm. he gets you, he chases you upstairs, and up money gets you in the end. And he did. Who who was was there was there a particular moment or a particular person that whose intervention made a difference in whether you went forward for ordination? Not exactly. What happened was that um, I have a habit. I'm quite a dedicated and deep um, prayer. I get up early in the mornings. I've done that for some years now, and I have a, something I say quite regularly, um, which is three questions from the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. And at the end of the first colloquy, Ignatius says, you should ask yourselves these three questions. What have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What ought I to do for Christ? Three very good questions. And just to sort of quite, and I, I quite often ask these questions and have done for years. Suddenly about three years ago, a mysterious answer came back. I'd like you to get ordained. I more or less said, shut up, God, don't be ridiculous. And I'm far too old. I'd be useless as a vicar. Um, you know, this is obviously not God's voice at all, muttering this stuff. And then um, it seemed to persist. And I kept on saying no. Um, and then the murmurs had changed. And the murmur said, Actually, I meant I wanted you to be a prison chaplain. And then suddenly that made me completely rethink because I knew there was a need for prison chaplains. 
I knew because I'd been doing prison ministry and a lay capacity for some considerable time that I could probably do it. So I thought about it, but then still said no. And then, with the murmuring's getting slightly worse, I um, said, oh, Lord, if you really want this, give me a sign, um, as the Pharisees used to say. And um, then suddenly, in the middle of August, I think it was four years ago now, the prison service was in one of its falling apart moments with riots and shortages. And people were saying, bring in the troops and things like that. And I was suddenly asked by the Sunday Times to write an article on what should be done with the prison service. And I wrote an article, and that, so myself, was one of my more thoughtful articles. I'd obviously thought about it, knew about it, had very good contacts to ring up. And I didn't go down the line of, gosh, we must call in the army, but said, no, no, it actually will get better. It was you know, sensible, slightly middle-of-the-roadish, but calming article. And the next thing I knew, people started sending me uh, texts saying, have you seen Archbishop Justin's tweet about your article? I didn't know he did tweet, nor my poor IT skills did I know how to get hold of his tweet. So it took me about 24 hours, but the tweet more or less said, um, in 45 words, you know, this is a very good article, we must all read it. And then it ended up by saying, Jonathan Aiken is a good and godly man who could do service for the Lord or something like that. I misquoted a bit, but that was the gist of it. And I thought, my goodness, I mean, here have I been saying, I want a sign. <laughs> the head of, my, <laughs> head of my church is saying these tweets. <laughs> Not, hallelujah, this is it, but more, perhaps I should explore it still further. You're cut from the same cloth a bit as, as, uh, as the current Archbishop of Canterbury. Not only did you go to the same school, but uh, you're both HTB sort yes. of products as well. So yes. it's a similar, you think a similar sort of way, I guess. Yes, I, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would, I mean, I, I'd, I would have loved to have seen a selection conference for uh, <laughs> the preparation for ordination in the Church of England. It can be quite vigorous, can't yes, it? Well, so I, I, was, I, was, I went on what was called a journey of discernment. Ah. And um, I saw some very good questioners and was well questioned and well grilled. Um, and I'd have been quite relieved if they had said no, but um, they said yes, and I was moved and delighted, and I've, I've loved being a prison And, of course, you'd already been to theological college, so I know, yes, it I, have, must have happened quite quickly after you'd yes, been well, to they selection did, They conference. didn't have to mess around because I'd got degrees and things. Um, and I had been doing quite a lot of lay ministry, both in prisons and, indeed, in preaching and things like that. So it, it wasn't you know, a huge culture shock to have to... Where did you get ordained? St Paul's Cathedral. Oh, I've heard of it, yes. And um, what's more... Uh, well, you'll know it very well. It's magnificent, the ordination service. But one of the joys to me was that two things. First, a joke about it, <clears throat> that um, it's the custom, as you well know, to have a little drinks party after the ordination. And the ordinand sort of finds a local hostelry. If they're lucky, take a private room to have <clears throat> those who've supported him on the ordination journey. I had just heard by chance that the old Bailey was starting to let out... <laughs> You're uh, kidding me! I'm, I'm not kidding you. It, it was letting out its top floor for corporate hospitality. So I um, asked and had some channels to do this. Could I rent it on the Saturday afternoon for the party? And it was one of the best parties I've ever given in my life. 
<laughs> not least because um, one of my old mates who I'd not lost, lost touch with from <clears throat> Belmarsh, some of whom have been in the prayer group, um, at least half a dozen of them come along. And, oh, that's a fantastic and story. A wonderful character called Razor Smith, who's now an assistant editor of Inside Time magazine, the prison's newspaper. He wrote a hilarious column about it. Enjoyed it. I've been there many times before, but always down in the cells. First time I've ever been up in this wonderful only. So we had a very, very um, good post-ordination party. Uh, and, of course, the ordination experience itself, as you well know, especially St Paul's, is deeply stirring and moving. So it was probably the greatest day of my life. I mean, your ministry is very distinctive, and, and you know, all, all these experiences we've talked about, very rich. Give me something, a sense of the, you know, I, I know what you bring to, you know, your, your chaplaincy, the, 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 the fact that you've had those, um, you know, you had this shared sense of experience, but also, I guess, emotionally and spiritually, you bring something to. Well, I suppose, <clears throat> first of all, I bring my experiences along, in the sense I've been in the depths. I've been up at some heights too, but I think the more relevant ones is being in the depths. So certainly as a prison chaplain, I can immediately relate, as I was doing when I was the working chaplain over Christmas in Penville, to how miserable it can be to be in prison over Christmas, because I've been in prison over Christmas. Um, and I understand, therefore, the territory the human emotional territory uh, pretty well, and and can, and as soon as they understand that I know it pretty well, they open up much more readily. So in prison, I mean, prison ministries all the time, you know, almost coping with alarms of people suddenly self-harming or attempting suicide or um, desperately down because they've had a knockback, bad news from home, saying their wife is leaving, and I understand all that. Um, so I think in terms of the, the biggest gift, if you can call it that, that I bring, is the gift of human experience matched to godly experience, because I also know how wonderful God can be uh, to a, a sinner who is turning direction. Do, do you feel you've been forgiven? Oh, yes. I think it's one of the most wonderful things about the um, Christian faith, uh, that you know you do believe that if you've genuinely repented, and only you and God know that, but if you really have, that he rushes out to meet you. Uh, and he does forgive uh, and gives you a, a second chance in the way that uh, some of the other religions don't do. They have or rules. the editor of The Guardian. Be, <laughs> I might be fair to Alan Rusbridger. He and I have, have been on radio programs together and get on well and, and are collaborating on something right now. So I don't feel any bitterness there at all towards anyone. But in terms of, you know, what do I bring? Uh, well, I don't know. Well, that power, that's a very powerful testimony about forgiveness, though. Yeah. It's very powerful. You didn't hesitate when I asked you that question. I wondered if you might. No, I really don't. And I keep meeting prison, people in prison, sometimes in the chapel, who said, I can't forgive myself. And I say, well, hang on a minute. Do you think God can forgive you? Do you think this forgiveness thing, um, you, the, the way you answered so readily, is partly because what you did wrong in the great scheme of things, maybe seen as slightly smaller than some of the other people who've been in prison, who've who've committed really quite evil acts. Mm. Uh, it may be mm. easier to speak of forgiveness for perjury, but not for murder. 
Well, I absolutely see the point. And, of course, I'm frequently um, having pastoral conversations with murderers and with lifers. But I'm thinking that God actually can forgive anybody, anything. There may well have to be an earthly punishment of 17 years in prison. But uh, I have met very repentant murderers, and I have no doubt that they, some of them have been forgiven um, so I think so. Who knows the mind of God? But So I don't at all resile, not least because in biblical terms, uh, people like Moses who'd been murderers, um, a forgiving God is a forgiving God beyond the limits of man's understanding. I would find it personally enormously difficult, if not impossible, to <clears throat> forgive, let's say, a sex offender who had attacked my child. I think, gosh, I think I can do that. But... You know, God could do that. I couldn't that. do that. Yeah. No. There's a, there's a thing that um, clergy often share amongst each other uh, that basically we've only really got one sermon in us. <laughs> you know, there's like, we just basically find different ways of... Yeah. It, I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it, do you have a sort of a core sermon? No, I think I'm getting slightly better at... Uh, preaching sermons just because first of all it's all new to me but B I love the challenge of saying you've got to preach on the gospel of the day and now let's unpick it and think about it and um, I do have some core talks that I give uh, and I have uh, it's probably getting rather tired now but I try and give it like a talk an outreach talk which goes the headline is from politics to prison, the prison chaplain to peace. And you can imagine I can yeah. rework a lot of material on that. But when it comes to a, a um, preaching the gospel, um, I seem to find it possible to really dig in and come out with what, to me at least, are original things to, to say or to think. One of the other bits of work that you now do is you work with Christian Solidarity Worldwide, which is a charity which is particularly concerned with the persecution of Christians throughout the world. Um, perhaps you say a little bit about that work. Well, I've been doing that now for over 20 years. I'm called president, whatever that means, of Christian Solidarity Worldwide, which has now renamed itself just to its initials, CSW. And we do more than just trying to fight against the persecution of Christians. I enjoy, you know, first of all, going to really understand where persecution is at its worst or just happening at all. And I sometimes have been on uh, trips to pretty grim places. And it helps having been a politician in a curious way because one of the things about CSW is not just to sympathise, anybody would, with the victims of persecution, but then to say, well... <clears throat> In advocacy terms, which is what CSW is all about, what can you actually do about it? And I do understand something about putting on pressure on places where they're persecuting. I mean, diplomatic pressure, media pressure, um, pressure of argument. Or you can even sort of persuade sometimes the Foreign Office to um, you know, not allow aid to go to places or as much aid because they are persecuting Christians. And there's been some big advances there at the end of parliamentary and ministerial and international pressure on bad regimes, which um, 
uh, behaved badly to uh, there was a re- there was a report out last year wasn't there by the bishop of Truro i think it was that, uh, that <coughs> well I, focused I, a little bit I on i had this. a bit to do with that or the and i was delighted that jeremy hunt um, took that yeah. sage's move as foreign secretary um but some people think i'm not sure myself but i was <coughs> asked to speak at the foreign office carol service and this is usually as a rather bland occasion but i said Look, let's give them a little bit of hell. Uh, why is the Foreign Office so limp-wristed about sticking up for Christians' persecution? After all, this is still... I mean, part was that last year? This yes. Part, yeah, part, yeah, part. Yeah, yeah. And the, the review was announced um, only a week or two later. I think they'd been thinking... It is of the it. case, though, isn't it? I mean, it, it is the case that, that, that the persecution of Christians is something that people tend to tend to sort of ignore in a way that they might not ignore the persecution of other faith groups. I'm afraid that's true, and it's bizarre. Um, it's sort of kind of political correctness gone mad. That uh, you know, Christianity should... is the persecutor, and so yeah. not the persecuted yeah. in people, a lot of people's minds. Yeah. But the, the more it comes out into the open, what's going on, where we can do more. And I think our embassies around the world have been given quite a shake-up by the Bishop of Truro's uh, report. It was it's been a very successful one. We still wait to see, but I think the um, Her Majesty's government, which did not have very high on its agenda uh, doing anything about the persecution of Christians, has now raised the bar of its activities. And so, to be fair, there's a growing number of parliamentarians on both sides of the House who are interested in speaking out. Uh, being a voice for the voiceless, as CSW calls itself, but it can apply to anyone. And uh, it's been a uh, trouble. Is the persecution seems to multiply in all kinds of places. You never stop. But I, I think our own voice in here from the UK is getting louder. We just had a woman who's come to come to our church who was a, a couple of years ago in Tehran, and um, her her she converted from Islam to Christianity, and with a number a number of other people in her prayer group, and they all were disappeared, and she didn't go to the prayer group that day and she had to escape through Turkey and came to this yes. country but they were, they were all disappeared I mean it's frightening you know, I'm pretty Iran is one of the worst countries and not only for Christians I mean the Baha'is for example get brutally treated by the Iranian regime so uh, the Christian persecution persecution of other faiths is I'm afraid a growing industry in many countries in the world Is this going to be your so your you know, sort of retirement. <laughs> You're going into retirement. I don't see you playing golf. I don't know if you play golf, but I don't see you doing that much. What what what's it going to look like in the next few years for you? Well, first of all, I count myself a recipient of enormous blessings from God to be first of all getting a new job at seventy five. Who else gets that? Um, secondly, to have a, a role which I hugely enjoy and, and are fulfilled by and turned on by, get up every day, every day to thank God. Um, so happy is the man who's doing something they're really interested in, really care about. Um, uh, of course, time's winging chariot is getting nearer anybody uh, <laughs> age 75. Uh, um, I'm talking 77. Uh, but um, I'd much rather burn out than rust out, so I'm not going to go to the golf course or anywhere else. Um, I'm going to carry on doing this as long as I can and loving it. Time's winged chariot. Mm. <laughs> I wonder we'll all have to face that final judgment, or before the beat, before the, the before the the, the the great judge of all things. 
Well, I do you think, think of that? Yes, I, I do think God is a judge. He's, I hope, going to be a merciful judge. Um, I laughed the other day. I was reading <clears throat> something in one of my favorite Christian authors uh, yesterday called Evelyn Underhill. And she tells a story of a considerable sinner, which could well be me, turning up at the gates of heaven. And um, St. Peter's going through the book with a gloomier and gloomier countenance. And then suddenly, over the wall of heaven, a, um, uh, a face pops up. I think it's a shaven-headed face. Maybe I'm adding up that detail. But it says, Oi, Peter, because of him, I'm in here. Let him in. <laughs> Peter says, In you go. Uh, and um, so I just think I might have a few friends on the other side of the wall who might help me to get in. You tell all this so fluently. You tell all this stuff so fluently about uh, about what happened to you. I suppose you've had to talk about it a lot, really, and so you develop a sort of fluency about it. I suppose anybody who's been in public life as long as develops a certain rather spurious fluency, uh, what really matters, of course, is what, which, how much of it comes from the heart. Uh, I'll let others judge that. Jonathan Aitken, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. <laughs>